0: Welcome back to New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Sasha Abramsky, author of Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. Sasha, thanks so much for being with us
1: today. Oh, it's a joy to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. This is Sasha's ninth book, which is a fabulous story about a woman who, at age 15, became the youngest player ever to win a Wimbledon crown. In fact, it was a record she held for 109 years until Martina Hingis won the 96 Wimbledon doubles tournament with Helen Moskova, beating Lottie by three days, but Lottie still holds the title for youngest singles champion at Wimbledon. But Sasha, first I'd like to talk to you about your background, and I think a good way to start might be with one of your previous books, which I found fascinating, The House of 20,000 Books. It's about, among other things, your grandfather's incredible book collection, and uh, tell me, how did that collection and his love for literature make an impact on you?
1: Well, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I grew up in London in the 1970s and 1980s, and I was surrounded by books. My parents had you know, large numbers of books, but the house that really sort of made an impact in terms of you know, my love of books, my love of ideas, and so on, was my grandparents' house, where the whole family would sort of go most weekends. My parents would drive out to North London, we'd decamp to my grandparents' house, and my granddad was a historian. His name was Shimon Abramsky, who'd grown up in the early Soviet Union, and the family had been ransomed almost to the West in the early 1930s. And my granddad had become a historian, largely self-taught. And over many, many decades, had this collected this absolutely fabulous collection of socialist literature. He was a historian of socialism, and of Jewish literature, because he was also a historian of Jewish history. And I would go to that house, and I'd be able to pull off the bookshelves, you know, first edition Karl Marx, or 16th century Bibles printed in Venice, or incredibly rare philosophy texts by René Descartes, or Hegel. And for me, this was just sort of normal. I'd go to this house, and I would kind of assume I'd be surrounded by rare books, and surrounded by extraordinary intellectuals, and at my parents' house, I'd be surrounded by intellectuals and at my cousin's houses and so on. And I think it took me until I was an adult, until I realized how rare a privilege it was growing up in that kind of environment. My granddad lived to be 93 years old. He was very, very engaged in the world into his 90s. And I loved him and I loved his house dearly. And when he died in 2010, I wanted to memorialize him and I wanted to memorialize my grandmother, Mimi. And so I wrote this book, which you mentioned, The House of 20,000 Books, which was my attempt to sort of go from room to room and explore all the ideas on those bookshelves and all the people who would inhabit these different rooms at different times. Um, And I think it did shape who I was. It made me realize the power of literature and the power of books and the power of ideas not just as these sort of abstract things off of the side, but as really motivating forces that shape the world we live in and shape our imagination and shape our dreams and in a very, very real way shape our humanity. And I think that you know, if I have to look back and think what are the things that made me who I am and made me love writing and made me love exploring worlds that I can explore through my writing, it was growing up in that kind of milieu.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about your, your writing career and your uh, academic career.
1: Well, you know, it, your readers are, or your listeners are coming to me through my book, Lottie Dodd, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. And for those of you who don't know me, you could be forgiven for thinking, all right, Abramsky's a sports historian. Uh, the truth is I'm not. The truth is in most of my day-to-day goings-on, I'm a political journalist. Um, I have two obsessions. I've I've been obsessed with tennis since I was about four or five years old. And my first hero was a Swedish sports player, Bjorn Borg, who won Wimbledon five times in a row from 1976 to 1980. And I wanted nothing so much than to be Bjorn Borg, to win Wimbledon, to be a tennis champion, to have fans all over the world cheering me on. And I realized when I was about 10 or 11 that it didn't matter how much I wanted that to happen. It just wasn't going to happen. I I didn't cut it on the tennis court. But in a way, that was liberating because my other obsession since I was also about four or five has been politics. And I think partly because of the house that I spent so much time in, my grandparents' house, and also my parents. My mother in particular was extremely involved in politics when I was growing up and in grassroots activism. She was very involved in the anti-nuclear movement. Um, I remember when I was probably about six or seven years old. My dad took me to see a play about Stephen Biko, who um, was one of the very important figures in the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. And he'd been brutally murdered by the South African security police. And so those were the sorts of things that animated me when I was a very young kid. Um, So on a day-to-day basis, I live in California now. I moved out to America in the 1990s. I write about politics. I write about social justice issues. Uh, My first few years in journalism... I was freelancing. I was in New York. I wanted to find areas that I would sort of have to myself. And I started writing a lot on the criminal justice system. And this was at the height of the war on drugs and the war on crime. And pretty much every politician left, right and center was advocating more prisons and more money to be spent on the criminal justice system. And year in, year out, more and more people were going into prison. And I started thinking, well, there's got to be collateral damage here. What's going to happen to communities when hundreds of thousands of people are removed from them and put into prison? What's going to happen to the labor market when two or three percent of the labor market is invisibilized by being behind bars? Uh, What's going to happen to these men and women when they come out of prison at the back end and they can't find access to public housing? And they can't get jobs because they've got the scarlet letter and they can't vote in many states like Florida because they've got a felony conviction. So I started writing about that and teasing out the implications, and I got fascinated by it. So for most of the last 25 years, I've written on social justice issues, whether it's the prison system or voter rights or housing access or health care. Or more recently, I've been writing a lot on immigration and what happens when a society starts snarling against immigrants, against asylum seekers or against refugees or against kids who came here and subsequently received darker status and are now being told, we think of you as illegal again. And I've really spent, you know, I can't tell you how many articles I've written, but hundreds and hundreds of articles over the last many years exploring these social justice themes. So that's what I usually write about. For me, this sort of move to writing a sports biography, it was something I treated myself to in a way. I've been writing so much about Donald Trump and about the Donald Trump era And my blood pressure was going up and up and up. And I was just doing these articles about things that I found so socially heinous. The idea of a sort of unleashed racism and unleashed white nationalism. And I needed to find some way to not disengage, because I don't think one can or should disengage from this moment. But I needed to find something that would exercise another part of my personality and that I could do on the side when I was thinking about politics. And I was lucky enough to stumble into this story of Lottie Dodd. And I, I stumbled upon her story a couple of years ago in London. I was out visiting my parents. I watched Wimbledon over the two weeks with my dad, which is a sort of ritual I had every summer. And then in August, I booked to go to a behind-the-scenes tour of Wimbledon with my son. And we went to Wimbledon. It was a foul day. It was one of those sort of awful summer days in London where it's raining cats and dogs. And we sat outside in the rain on Centre Court while the tour guide lectured to us about the history of Wimbledon. And at the end, he said, well, your ticket includes the museum. Why don't you spend a bit of time in the museum? So we crept downstairs to the basement museum. And in a corner, there was this little exhibit on late 19th century tennis stars in the first decades of the game of tennis. And there was just a tiny patch of material on Lockie Dodd, and something about her story intrigued me. I think not least the fact that I'd never encountered her name, and I thought I knew everything about the tennis greats. And here was this woman who clearly qualified as a great, but I knew nothing about her. And I went back home, and I thought about it, and I phoned the Wimbledon archivist, and I said, look, I'm in London for a few more weeks, and I'd dearly love to come into your library and go through your archives and see what I can find out about Lottie Dodd. Is that okay? And they were incredibly generous. And they opened up their archives and I spent just this fabulous few days there giving myself eye strain as I looked through these old 120, 130 year old sports journals and newspapers and magazines and society magazines and so on. And by the end of about day three I realised that not only was Lottie Dodd this sort of marginally interesting figure, She was actually an incredibly interesting figure. And it wasn't just tennis that made her interesting. It was the fact that she had conquered just numerous sports, tennis and golf and hockey and winter sports and archery and probably a whole bunch more. And she'd done all of this against the backdrop of the suffragette movement and all this sort of really radical and remarkable social change that was going on at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And I fell in love with her story. And I think one of the things any writer is looking for is something that hasn't been told before. And I realized I'd stumbled onto virgin territory here that for whatever reasons, this was a story that should have been told many, many times and just hadn't been. And so I started doing my historical research and my sort of deep dive into the archives, and piece by piece began putting this digital puzzle together. And it took a long time. It was a couple of years of really hard work. But I think by the end of it, I had found a wonderful picture. I found something that when you put all the pieces together, produced something that looked marvelous. And I'm not talking about my writing per se, though I hope the readers of my book find it to be a good read. But I mean, Lottie God's life, which was just such an absolutely fabulous and improbable story, and so I decided I would tell it, and that's how my book Little Wonder came about.
0: True, and I thought your writing was was quite descriptive. Um, what I found so interesting about Lottie as a tennis player was how easily she dominated during her teens. I mean, she won it as a 15-year-old; she won five times, and she was beating older women and I think three of the top four
1: male players on the circuit. Why was she so dominant? Well, I, I, you know, it's one of those things when you read her story, you think, surely this could not be. But it turned out that it was. And the more I read, the more I realized. It wasn't just that there were fewer women athletes at the time. No, there were fewer athletes. And it wasn't just that tennis was a new sport. So it was a new sport. It started in the 1870s. But it was the fact that right from the get-go, Lottie Dodd was recognized and recognized herself as being a league of her own. And she entered the competitive circuit when she was 11 years old. Her older sister, Anne, took her out on these sort of tours of northern England from their family home in Edgeworth, just outside Liverpool. And they'd go on these trains and they'd go to towns all over northern England and then later all over England and then later all over the British Isles. And by the time she was 12 or 13, she was beating pretty much every leading woman on the circuit. And the newspapers started paying attention. And that alone interested me. I remember when I was in my early twenties, I visited my grandmother, who was a Californian. Despite my accent, I'm half American, and my grandparents had moved from New York to the West Coast in the 1930s. And my granddad had died. My, my American granddad, not the one who had the um, book collection, but my American granddad, who was a violinist, had died in um, 1990. In, I'm sorry, 1992. And my grandmother was an old lady living alone in L.A. And whenever I had the opportunity, I would go out to visit her. And I remember sitting at her kitchen table one day in the mid-1990s, and I encountered a newspaper article in the L.A. Times about these two really young girls who were about seven and eight and nine and ten years old um, who were going to be doing something great in tennis. And their names were Venus and Serena Williams. And I remember reading that article and then a few years later, sure enough, Venus and then Serena Williams stormed onto the tennis world and started beating everybody in sight. Well, 115 years earlier, give or take, Lockheed God had done the same thing. This incredibly precocious talent had burst onto the scene and by the time she was 11, the sports writers of the age were writing about her. And by the time she was 12 or 13, she was fulfilling their prophecies. And then, as you said, by the time she was 15, she went out and won Wimbledon. And she did it again when she was 16. And then that summer, it was also the summer that Jack the Ripper began terrorizing women in the East End of London. So the the newspaper headlines were divided in their loyalties. Some of the sensational press was focusing on Jack the Ripper. But in the sports section, a lot of the media was focusing on this teenage sensation, Lottie Dog. And what she did when she was 16 years old, you, you mentioned it, She challenged three of the leading male tennis players of her age, a guy called Harry Grove, who had won the Scottish championship, and then the two greatest players alive, the Wenshaw brothers, William and Ernest. And William had won every Wimbledon except for one in the 1880s, and his brother had won the one that he didn't win. And between the two of them, they were completely impossible to beat, except for the fact that when Lottie Dodd challenged them, they made the mistake of offering her a handicap. They gave her a 30 love head start on each game. And the reason they did that was they thought she's a girl. She has to wear all this heavy clothing. And women at the time, when they played sports, they had to wear corsets. They had to wear ankle-length dresses. They had to wear tights and stockings. Uh, they had to wear clothing that went up to their necks. They had no flexibility in how they would play. And the Renshaw brothers and Harry Grove thought, you know, no way Lottie Dodd can beat us. And so they gave her this handicap, this dirty love handicap. And then they arranged this series of very well-publicized exhibition matches, and the newspapers were all over it, and there were thousands of spectators who descended to see these matches. It was a real hoopla. And Lottie Dodd lost the first match to Ernest Renshaw, but barely. She lost in a three-set squeaker, and she lost the final set seven-five. But then in the next two matches... She demolished Harry Grove, and she absolutely trounced William Renshaw, who was far and away the best male athlete, best male tennis player on earth at the time. And so it isn't just that Lottie Dodd was operating with fewer competitors. It's that she was simply indomitable. She trained like a professional athlete, even though obviously the athletes at the time were amateurs. She experimented with equipment. She experimented with techniques. She was the first tennis player to understand that if you change your grip between a forehand and a backhand, you dramatically improve the strength of your backhand. Um, and one of the things that was truly extraordinary, she was a woman who would rush to the net at any opportunity, a little bit like Martina Navratilova in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. She would just rush to the net, and then she would hit a winning volley. So she played this extraordinarily aggressive game. And I think there was this really profound sense of competitiveness. You sort of get a sense of it in the interviews she would do. She said, look, I have no patience for half-hearted approaches. I don't want to be a garden party player. I play to win. And she did. And, you know, it didn't really matter whether the sport was tennis or tobogganing or ice skating or archery or whatever it was she was doing at whatever moment in time. And she was an athlete for 25 years. Whatever she did, she competed to win. And to me, it's remarkable to watch a character like that develop over the years. And usually when you encounter a character like that, they're not just strong-willed in tennis, but they're just remarkably strong-willed in how they approach life. And certainly with Lottie Dodd, she lived to be nearly 90 years old. She was born in 1871 in northern England. She lived all over the UK, and she died at the age of 88 or 89 in a retirement home in a southern English community called Sway, right by the English Channel. And the entire 88 years of her life is characterized by this fierce independence, this desire to dance to her own tune whether it was tennis or whether it was the life that she did after sports in the 55, 60 years she lived after she stopped playing tennis you know, she was somebody who just would not accept other people telling her what to do and how to live and you you
0: talked about some of the obstacles that she faced You know, particularly the clothing, I just can't imagine for example Serena Williams wearing a you know, dress all the way down to her ankles <laughs> um what kind of obstacles did they face uh women facing in the late late decades of the 19th century i know that lottie wrote a very passionate um seven page article about her beliefs on the matter
1: yeah she did and i i when i found that article it was a really sort of weaker moment for me because i was trying to work out what she thought about the sort of equality of the sexes or the battle of the sexes and she wasn't political i found some newspaper cuttings in her scrapbooks, that indicated that she or maybe her mother had cut out some materials on the legal equality of women. She certainly believed in the legal equality of women, but she wasn't innately political. I couldn't find evidence that she went on suffragette rallies or spoke in favor of the suffragettes or anything like that. But she didn't brook people saying to her, you can't do this because you're a woman. And time and again, that's what journalists in particular tried to do. They would demean her. They would write these um, profiles of her saying, well, of course, the reason she's so good is that she had two gentleman brothers. She had these older brothers, um, Anthony and William, and these brothers were kind enough to teach her sports. Well, it was absolute nonsense. She was far better at sports than them, and they were good athletes. Her, her brother, William, actually did win the Olympic gold medal in archery in 1908 when Lottie won the silver medal for women. But outside of archery, and all the other sports that they played, she was dominant. She, she was far better than them at tennis. She was far better than them at tobogganing. They went mountaineering together in the 1890s. and There are these extraordinary photos of the dogs hanging off these winter peaks in Switzerland and then also hiking some of the most difficult peaks in Norway in 1896 and 1897. But... It was clearly Lottie Dodd who was the dominant figure there. She was the one who would experiment the most, she'd take the most risks, she would go after mountain peaks that were way beyond her skill level just because they were there and she didn't want to say, I'm too scared to do this. Uh, But there were a lot of magazine and newspaper profiles that said, "Eh, she's good, but only for a woman. And the reason she's good is because she was trained by boys or by men. And anyway, she's not particularly beautiful. She's too muscular and a little bit chubby. And there were these really weird, demeaning articles about her physical appearance. And Dodd fought back and she, she wrote her own articles and she also gave interviews in which she explained just how hard she was at training and just the, you know, r- the extreme regimentation of her training regimen. And she would talk about how difficult it was to play tennis at the level she played and basically say, if you don't believe me, why don't you try it? And you'll find that playing a full length match is nothing easy. It's it's nothing you can do in a half-hearted way. And then when she went over to do winter sports, she had figures telling her, well, you can't do the Cresta toboggan run, which was maybe the first major toboggan run on earth and certainly the most difficult toboggan run on earth. It was in Samaritz in Switzerland and all the daredevils of the late 19th century would descend there from England and France and Germany, from Argentina, the United States, Russia, and they'd come and try and prove their mettle by getting down the Cresta run. And a goodly number of them failed and injured themselves pretty seriously when they were thrown off the course. And Dodd convinced her friend, um, Harold Lapham, who was, Har- Harold Topham, who was one of the greatest tobogganists of the age. He convinced him to train her so that she could do the run and he was really reluctant because at the time there was a lot of medical literature out there that said that women who indulged in really serious physical activity, especially, especially the kind of activity where you're lying down on your stomach and hurtling down a mountain, that it was dangerous to them, that it would in some ways damage their reproductive system. And some of the medical literature said it was likely to trigger breast cancer, And so Harold Popham was really reluctant to take her on as a student, and she pleaded with him, and she convinced him. And despite the fact that there was all this demeaning literature out there about how people in petticoats couldn't possibly go down a toboggan run, God did it. She was the only woman in the 1890s to get down that run from start to finish. And I think she did it at least in part because people had said to her, you can't do it. And then if you fast forward, go all the way to 1908, which was her sort of final hurrah in the world of sports. And she was suffering terrible sciatica by then. And she was really hobbled as an athlete. But she qualified to be on the English team for archery. And this was 1908. The Olympics were in London. There was this huge Olympic stadium and Olympic grounds that were built in West London at White City. And there were 2,000 athletes who came in from all over the world to compete. And of those 2,000, only 45 of them were women, because most countries, Olympic teams, just didn't want anything to do with female athletes. And of those 45, most of them were from the United Kingdom. And they played and competed in the face of tremendous official contempt and distaste. And this was most overtly expressed by the head of the International Olympic Committee was this Frenchman called Pierre Coubertin. And Coubertin had not only talked against women athletes, but he'd written books and articles eviscerating the very concept. And he believed that the Olympics in particular had to be the preserve of male athletes. And he believed that in an amateur age when there weren't huge cash prizes for the victors, that one of the things that the male athletes could and should compete for and this is his words, not mine, was female adulation. He believed that the female applause was something that drove male athletes to compete at their best level. And by contrast, he believed that if women were to compete athletically, they would never be treated seriously by the audiences, but would only ever provide a source of titillation to them. And so he urged women to back off and to not make a fuss and to not get involved in the Olympics, And most female athletes did back off. And again, Lottie Dodd said, absolutely not. And she competed. And in her competing, she actually helped crowbar open the Olympics so that all future Olympics were open to an increasing number of female athletes. Again, it's sort of way ahead of her time. She's 10, 20, 30 years ahead of her time. She's doing this. Certainly, more than 20 years before Babe Dickinson Zaharias, who is the most famous American sporting polymath. Um, Zaharias basically hit the stage during the LA Olympics, and that was three or four Olympic cycles after Lottie Dog. So, you know, she really was in a complete league of her own when she was doing what she was doing.
0: I um uh, I liked one line that you wrote about Lottie where you said um, inertia for her had never proven a particularly appealing law of nature and I think that manifested itself by what you were saying where she went from tennis to golf to to mountain climbing to hockey and ice cricket and uh, did she just get bored with um, dominating one sport or did she really relish the challenge of, of tr- trying something new and appealing and and exciting and difficult.
1: Uh-huh. I think both. I think what happens was when things got too easy for her at one sport, the challenge wasn't there anymore. And she said as much. She talked to interviewers in the 1890s and she said, I've got no desire to be the kind of competitor who simply stays with one sport just to pick up more and more trophies. And she liked trophies. her, her, Her bedroom in the family home in Edgeworth, when a journalist went to interview her there when she was still living at home, her bedroom was chock full of trophies. The interviewer said it was almost like a storehouse. So it wasn't that she was averse to... The silverware that came with her victories. But it didn't do enough for her. It wasn't enough of a motivating factor. What was a motivating factor was the challenge of something new. So you mentioned ice cricket. You know, that's an absurd sport. Nobody plays ice cricket except for the fact that in San Maritz and in Davos and in some of the other resort towns where the social elites and these explorers and these eccentrics and these adventurers would the descend. They were always looking for something new. And so they invented their own sports and one of them was ice cricket, where they would put on ice skates and they would go onto a frozen lake and they would play the game of cricket and instead of running between the wickets, they would skate between the wickets the wickets. And we had and there are photos of this crazy sport from the eighteen nineties, taken by her dear friend Elizabeth Mayne, who is a sort of you know fabulous character in and of her own right, a great mountaineer, one of the truly epic photographers of nature of the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties every bit as good as Ansel Adams. And Elizabeth Mayne befriended Lottie Dodd and kind of adopted her She was about 10 or 15 years older than Lottie Dodd. And they had this very intense friendship that lasted about five years. And during that time, Elizabeth Mayne taught Lottie Dodd how to do extreme mountain climbing. And as I said earlier, Lottie Dodd, who had never trained as a mountaineer before, Suddenly found herself doing winter summiting of thirteen thousand foot poops in February in the Swiss Alps, wearing all the Victorian paraphernalia with only the most primitive of mountaineering gear and they go over glac- glaciers they summit these almost vertical rock faces, and they did this seemingly with no fear um, you know it, the the following spring after Lottie God had done all of this mountaineering, Lottie and Elizabeth Main and Lottie's brother Anthony and a couple other friends did an endurance bicycle tour that took them around five or six countries in Western Europe. And again, nobody had done that or very, very few people. There, there were a few who had done this, but very few people in the 1880s and 90s had done the kind of endurance bicycling trip over hundreds and hundreds of miles that god did and again it was just for the hell of it it was just to prove that she could do it and try something new and if there was media attention attached that was fine but it was never the aim it was never the goal to get attention she, she really didn't relish the newspaper headlines she tolerated it but the real motivating factor was mallory's factor george mallory the mountaineer when he was asked, why are you trying to climb mount everest which was this 29,000 foot peak that was thought to be impossible to climb. And Mallory gave this famous answer because it's there. And, it, you know, that that's succinct answer, I think, in many ways sums up Lottie Gold's whole approach to sport. She would try a new sport because it was there. And she would try to be the best at that sport because that was the challenge of the moment.
0: We took it all. We brought them to our land. one of the peaks that they climbed and you made you made the you wrote the description that the summit looked like a chimney because they had to go straight up i mean that was incredibly intimidating
1: and uh
0: talk about the relationship with elizabeth main and and uh,
1: do you can you tell us
0: why it eventually soured
1: i can't definitively i have some ideas a lot of people when I've, i've been talking about this book on and off for quite a few weeks now and um Every so often, people read this, and the question they have is, you know, what what was Lossie Dodd's romantic, romantic life like? Did she have a love life? Um, was she heterosexual? Was she gay? The answer is she didn't seem to have any desire to subsume her life in somebody else's. She certainly had no desire to get married and have children, and once she was married, to lead a respectable upper-middle-class life where she couldn't go and do her own things and couldn't work and... She had no desire to do that. She never wanted to have kids. She doesn't seem to have had any long-term romantic relationships. Certainly no love letters survived or anything like that. And the question does arise. you know, Is it possible that she was gay? And it's certainly possible. And the relationship she had with Elizabeth Mayne, who had been thrice married and I think thrice widowed by the 1890s, It was certainly a very intense relationship. And Elizabeth Mayne wrote a lot about Lottie Dodd and took a huge number of photographs of Lottie Dodd and then annotated them in very precise handwritten notes. She would annotate them in the margins of her albums. And some of the annotations are really very intimate. They're almost coquettish, flirtatious. And so the answer is, I don't know. I don't know if there was any kind of romance. I don't know if either Lottie Dodd or Elizabeth Mayne thought of themselves as being romantically entwined. I do know they had a very intense falling out, that at some point in the late 1890s, they stopped talking to each other. And it wasn't just the kind of falling out where they got bored or went their own ways. Something happened in the late 1890s where Elizabeth Mayne basically wrote Lottie Dodd out of her story's existence. She stopped writing about her, stopped mentioning her. And Elizabeth Mayne wrote many, many, many books and she wrote about her social circle in San Moritz in great detail. But she completely erases Lottie God from, from that set, that circle of friends. So, you know, there, there was certainly a very intense friendship between the two women. Whether it was more than a friendship, that would be speculation. And I, I don't know the answer, and so I don't definitively say one way or another in the book.
0: Yeah. And I think also uh, her attitude about... Um being a woman and everything, I think the, the um, sense back then in, in um, early 20th century or late 19th century England is that uh, once you got married, you pretty much um, handed off your life to your husband. And I don't think she stood for that at
1: all. No, that's right. And, you know, when I was saying earlier that even though she wasn't in the suffragette movement, there were some newspaper clippings in her scrapbooks which were about women's rights. The reason that really grabbed my attention was Lottie Dodd had a series of scrapbooks that she started keeping in the 1880s, and she divided them thematically between different sports. And then she also had a couple of scrapbooks that were sort of more general interest, where she kept letters from friends or kept clippings or kept photos of her home in Edgeworth and so on. And there are almost no newspaper clippings other than the ones to do with her sporting accomplishments or her family's sporting accomplishments. But there was this huge exception. At the back of one of her scrapbooks, was this series of articles that I think date to the 1870s when Lottie Dodd was a child. So my guess is it was her mother who had cut them out. And they were a series of articles written on the legal status of women. And they were advocacy articles saying how absurd and unfair it was that when a woman married, all of her property and all of her money and basically all of her legal rights were handed over to her husband. And the person who had written this was making an argument for the legal and financial independence of women. And Dodd kept this. And the reason I thought it was important was that she lived her life by that principle. So she never got married. And for many, many years, she lived in the family home at Edgeworth. And then after her mother died, she and her siblings, or at least her brothers, moved down south to a suburb outside London called Newbury. And they bought a house together there. And they lived as a team for quite a few years until World War One, And then in world, just before World War I, one of her brothers went off and got married. And then during World War I, her oldest brother, William, who was 47 at the time, joined this absolutely fascinating battalion called the Sportsman's Battalion. And that's the story in and of itself. It was a battalion that was set up by a fanatical middle-aged woman. I can't remember her name offhand. It's in my book. But... She had been an athlete and was very friendly with many of the empire's best athletes, and she was very, very wealthy. By the time World War One broke out, she was crippled by arthritis, but she wanted to do something for the war effort, and so she sent a telegram to Kitchener, who was the Secretary of State for War, and she said to him, "Look, I'm willing to fund a sportsman's battalion if you'll give me the go-ahead." He says, "Sure," and. So she sets up shop in the Hotel Cecil, which was one of the most elegant, grandiose hotels in the centre of London. And she set it up as a recruiting station. And over a period of months, many, if not most, of the leading athletes in Britain, in Australia, in Canada, and elsewhere in the empire, signed on. And they joined this sportsman's battalion, and a great number of them were massacred in the Battle of the Somme. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that this is the moment where Lottie Dodd has to start living independently because her, her older sister's gone off and got married and had a family. Her older brother, Anthony, has gone off and got married. And now her oldest brother, William, who's a bachelor and who she's been sort of closest to, he's gone off to war. And so she starts living independently. She becomes a volunteer nurse in the center of London. And then right after World War I, she buys herself a house in a part of central London called Earl's Court. And when I was growing up in London in the 70s and 80s, Oils Court was where Australian backpackers would go and they'd stay in hotels and B&Bs. But back in the early years of the 20th century, there would be very elegant, grand stone buildings, five-story, four-story, five-story houses. And it was a really interesting, quite elegant, but also quite bohemian part of London. And Lottie Dodd moves in as a single middle-aged lady into one of these houses. And the moment she can, as a woman of property, she registers to vote in 1918-19, just after women's suffrage. And I think that shows really just how independent she was. She had no desire to settle down, no desire to become part of a family just because, no desire to have children and give up her sporting career or the career that followed after sports and every desire to prove her independence, and when she could vote, to vote. And, you know, I really admire her character. I admire the fact that she didn't settle for other people's understanding of what she should do with her life, but she lived it on her own terms. And, you know, for me, that's how life should be lived. And it makes for interesting people, and it makes for interesting experiences and stories.
0: Right, to thine own self be true, basically. Um, Tell us about, um, let me circle back to Lottie's family life. I mean, uh, how was her relationship with her siblings and her parents? I I believe in the book, I think you said her father died when she was young, and her mom was kind of a domineering sort. So uh, what was the relationship
1: there? Well, her father died when she was very young. She was seven or eight years old. He was a very wealthy cotton merchant. He was part of that new money that had made its fortune around the importation of cotton, mainly from the United States, but then during the American Civil War from India. And he made a huge amount of money and invested it well and basically was living a gentleman's squire's existence. He had a large country estate. They were fanatically into sports. They built their own tennis courts a few years after tennis was invented. They encouraged their children to be sporting-obsessed, Gentlemen and gentle ladies, and they homeschooled the kids. They, they never had them go to school. They had governors and governesses brought into school with four children. And I, I think that Lottie Dodd's dad, when he died, left a house that was financially independent, but became quite claustrophobic. The sense I got is that Margaret Aspinall, I think her name was, uh, Lottie Dodd's mother, was quite overbearing, and quite unwilling to let the children explore the wider world. She created her own world in Edgeworth, in the estate. And the older the children got, the sense I got was it became quite claustrophobic. And for the girls in particular, Anne the oldest and Lottie the youngest, there had to be an escape valve because it was the only way they could see the rest of the world. And the escape valve became sports. And I think Lottie became an excuse for Anne in a way. Anne was older. She was good at sports, but she wasn't as good as Lottie. So what she did is she began chaperoning her younger sister around England to these sporting tournaments, and it was the way that they could see the wider world. So one of the consequences of the way the children were brought up, it reminds me, actually in a very profound way, it reminds me of the Mitford family. And I'm sure many of my audience will have heard of the Mitford sisters. There were, there were also some brothers, but the famous ones are the Mitford sisters, Nancy and Jessica and um, Unity, and I think there were a couple others, Pamela. And these girls had been brought up in, they were a little bit younger than Lottie Dodd. They'd been born into the very end of the Victorian period and beginning of the Ed- Edwardian years, but they'd been brought up in a very self-contained house, and their world wasn't revolving around sports. It was revolving around ideas and culture and politics. And so they all ended up doing these interesting and or disturbing things in the world of politics or literature. And it seems to me that William and Anthony and Anne and Lottie Dodd were brought up with a similar obsession around sports, but they were also brought up to be very, very cultured. They they were very good artists. Anthony was a champion chess player. Lottie was very, very good at piano music and later in life became a madrigal singer, a very successful madrigal singer. So I think they were all brought up both to have this profound engagement with the world of sports, but also a certain kind of culture, but also to be very self-contained. So they were a unit. The four siblings were desperately close. And for much of Lottie Dodd's life, she lived with one or other sibling, either in Edgeworth or then down in Newbury, or later on, William Dodd, who never married, lived with her at her house Earl's court, and then she returned the favour and lived with him when she was a very old lady at his house in southern England, in Devon, in a place called Westwood Ho, exclamation point. It's a lovely name. Uh, (laughs) But but I think the answer to your question is she was extremely close to her siblings, and she outlived them all. And it it must have been a, a very lonely last part of her life when she outlived all of the siblings who were really the bedrock of her existence. And she had nothing to fall back on. She had some nieces and nephews, but she had none of her own children. She had no spouse. And I think in the last part of her life, she became very much a hermit, a recluse. And she sort of disappeared from the public domain and fades away. And I think that's one reason she's not better known today. By the time we get to the sort of 1920s and certainly by the 1930s, she really didn't want to be in the public spotlight. She wanted to be almost anonymous and I think she pushed herself towards that anonymity.
0: You know, it's funny because I, I um before I set up the interview with her, I, I checked on um, newspapers.com and did a search on Lati da and there was almost thirty-four thousand entries and I went, Wow. Well about 30, 33,990 of those were just agate-type listing the Wimbledon winners. And so it's very difficult to find stuff about her.
1: Um, awesome. I mean, as a, as a researcher, it was a fabulous challenge for me. And it really made me go deeper than I've, i I went very deep in my book, The House of 20,000 Books. I, I really did a lot of archival research and a lot of historical reading for that. Um, but this was the other book. It really pushed my skills as a researcher. I'm not a formally trained historian, but I have an awful lot of background thinking about history, not least because of the family I was surrounded with and the fact that my granddad was a world class historian and many of his friends were just top historians from all over the world. So I've always loved that. Um but it was a real challenge because as you said, when you go into the archives, at first all you find are these, you know, scorecards basically of, you know, what she won and when. When right. you go deeper, you can find a lot more material but you have to know where to look and you have to um really sort of be willing to do a deep dive in, in terms of the research but it doesn't matter how good your research is at a certain point she vanishes um by the time she's about 60 years old she really does vanish into the shadows and becomes a silhouette
0: the um interesting thing is after she left tennis and did her other things she took up golf which is again another male dominated sport um how did she uh, how was she received by the golf community
1: Well, they loved her. She, When she stopped playing tennis in the early 1890s, I managed to find a series of ditties in which anonymous poets and singers wrote these limericks about Lottie Dodd on the golf course and how good she could be or might be or how good she would be if she put her heart into it. And the thing that was really fascinating is when she was a tennis player, she had begun getting this really obsessive, fan base around her. And the name of the book, when I called it Little Wonder, it's because that was her nickname. The sports figures and the sports writers of the 1880s and 90s called her the Little Wonder because she was this teenage sensation. And she had thousands of fans. We, we think of tennis as a fairly sedate sport. But back in the 1880s, when she was dominating everything in tennis, the fans would come on in. They'd take trains from London to what was then the sort of deep suburbs of Wimbledon. And they would surround her as she played, and they would chant, La T, La It was almost like a football game more than a tennis match. And all of that sort of fan obsession was translated into golf. So there are these newspaper articles from the time when she started winning in the mid-1890s, and she, she didn't actually really peak as a golf player until 1904. But there, there are these articles where thousands of people would descend on the golf Golf rings to see Lottie Dodd in action. And one of the most fascinating things I found was he won the British Golf Championship, the Women's Ladies Golf Championship in 1904. The tournament was played in Scotland near the Clyde. And the Clyde. At yeah, Troon, yeah, right? At yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the, the Clyde is where the British shipping industry was centered. And it's full of tough working class men. And these tough working-class men put down their tools and en masse left the shipyards to go over to Troon to see Lottie Dodd in action. And there were all these newspaper reports about how rowdy and noisy these working-class supporters were. And they, I think they, the sports writers were quite discombobulated by it because it was something completely different from what they were used to. But it gives you an indication of the fact that God said, I'm not a garden party player, and she wasn't. She was very wealthy. She was part of the social elite. But when she played sports, she played without quarter, and the working-class fans in Scotland dearly loved her for it. They loved the passion she brought to it. They loved the fact that there was nothing gentle about the way she played sports, and they loved the fact that she played to win. And so when, when, when you start reconstructing Lottie Dodd's career in golf especially, you find the fandom to be a really interesting part of the story. And it's
0: interesting that she didn't like to be called Lottie. She wanted to be called Charlotte.
1: She did. Her birth name was Charlotte. Her nickname was Lottie. She was never really comfortable with the fact that her nickname given to her in family circles had become the way that she was publicly recognized. But I think at a certain point, she kind of gave in to the inevitable because sports figures, accumulate a certain image and a certain name and they're stuck with that that name and image. People don't get changed halfway through. And I think she realized at certain points she was always going to be Lottie Dodd and she didn't quite make her peace with it. She tell interviewers every so often that she loathed the nickname. But mm. the fight was half hearted. but you know, when it came down to it she recognized that she had a huge following that understood her to be Lottie, not Charlotte, and she ran with it.
0: Right. And you know, then she takes up archery, and that was basically her final hurrah in sports. I mean, my gosh, like you said earlier, it wasn't Olympics weren't exactly a sport for women, but she, again, she conquered that. And archery is just such an interesting way to end your career.
1: It is, and you know, the funny thing is, maybe it's not funny. The, the poignant thing is that one of her very very distant ancestors, going back more than four hundred years at that point, was. A man called Dodd. And Dodd, legend had it, had been knighted on the field of Agincourt by King Henry. And the family had incorporated Dodd's mythology into everything. They, he was called Dodd of Edge, was his name. And so they named their house Edgeworth after their ancestor. And when the siblings moved to Newbury, they named their house again a variant on their ancestor, Dodd of Edge. And I think Lottie Dodd had grown up hearing this legend of this illustrious ancestor on the field of Atencourt. And even as a child, the Dodds had done archery. They'd done it on their grounds of the estate of Edgeworth. And so for me, it was her coming full circle. It was something that was a foundational myth for her, It was something she loved as a child but then she put it to one side for nearly a quarter of a century and done all these other sports. Now in her late thirties, she was completely incapable of the kind of sport like tennis that made you run around a lot because she was suffering terrible sciatica by then. But she was good enough still to train as an archer and she did. She trained very, very hard at an archery ground near the house in Newbury. And then she had this really hard fight. And again, I mentioned the terrible weather when I was at Wimbledon in August when I discovered Dodd's story. You know, there's often terrible weather in London in the summer and the 1908 Olympics were no exception. It was a particularly rainy, muddy, windy summer. And the conditions were absolutely abysmal. And there were days when the sports had to be canceled or delayed and there were huge problems around that Olympics. And doing archery in a windstorm and a rainstorm is not easy. And the only image I have managed to find of Dodd, the only moving image there seems to be of Dodd playing one of her sports, is a 30-second crackly old film footage. It's now in the Pathé archives, I believe. But you can see Lottie Dodd in that very early film footage in the Olympics firing off her bows at the target. And I can only imagine how difficult it must have been. Again, she's wearing full-length regalia. She's wearing a very heavy hat. And it's clearly windy and rainy, but she's absolutely focused. And you know, even though it's only 30 seconds of film footage, in that 30 seconds, you can see all of the intensity that she brought to sport and
0: i think um elizabeth Mayne or, or somebody had taken pictures of her when she took her st- her skating test too and that was a you know she, not only did she take the women's skating test but she also took the men's skating test and passed both of them so that was another incredible feat
1: that's right and you know there's a lot of still footage of god doing her different sports a lot a lot of camera footage uh, camera imagery and elizabeth Mayne took a lot of those photographs and the photos of her ice skating are particularly beautiful and you're absolutely right that women's ice skating, way too easy for her. So she went up and did the men's ice skating test at Samaritz, which was the most difficult ice skating test on earth at the time. And by the end of it, she was a ranked male ice skater. And um, by all accounts, a really, really talented, elegant skater.
0: Now readers, and we can circle back to this, uh, readers um, may draw the parallel between Lottie Dodd and Babe Didrikson. And, you know, she obviously, the Babe, did some great stuff during the 1930s and, you know, golf, tennis, whatever. Um, how would they like and different? I mean, I know that uh, Babe was more of a self-promoter where Lottie didn't didn't go for that.
1: I think you put your, you, you put the nail on the head there. The similarity is they were sporting polymaths, but they did many different sports and were very, very good at many different sports. The difference is that while Lottie Dodd tolerated being in the spotlight, she never craved it whereas Babe Dickerson Zaharias both craved it and was very good at generating her own publicity. She really knew how to manipulate the media. And I think that's probably one reason that more people remember Babe Dickerson Zaharias than remember Lottie Dodd. And I think the other reason is just timing, that whereas there's 30 seconds of moving film footage of Lottie Dodd playing sports, and I think another 90 seconds of her when she was an older lady and went back to Wimbledon in 1926, to receive a medal from the king and queen. Other than that, there's no moving footage of her, whereas there's a lot of film footage of Babe Dickens and Zaharias, and a lot of radio interviews of Babe Dickens and Zaharias, and then later on, I think there's some TV footage. So, there's an electronic media archive that makes it easier to keep Babe Dickens and Zaharias in the public spotlight in a way that there isn't for Lottie Dodd. So I think that's probably the biggest difference, just timing.
0: Did um, Lottie Dodd ever have any um, opinion or comment about Didrikson, Zaharias?
1: None that I found. and I'm not sure they really knew of each other's existence. Lottie Dodd's life basically encompasses Zaharias. Zaharias was born a few decades after Lottie Dodd, and she died before Lottie Dodd. So, you know, in a sense... It would, it would probably be more likely that Babe Dickerson would have talked about Lottie Dodd and said, oh, you know, here's this inspiration from a generation earlier. She never did. I never found any evidence that she talked about or referenced or gave credit to Lottie Dodd for, you know, breaking that glass ceiling. And conversely, I also didn't find any evidence that Babe Dickerson Zaharias was on Lottie Dodd's radar in any way, shape or form.
0: You know, you open and close the book uh, with um, Lottie listening to Wimbledon when she died. I thought that was quite fitting and quite ironic.
1: Yeah, she died as a very old lady in a nursing home. She was very ill at the time and um, possibly, possibly dementing. I'm not sure about that, but mm-hmm. certainly in very bad physical state. And she apparently died listening to the radio for the second week of Wimbledon. And I managed to find, I went on to the Wimbledon archives. I worked out what matches were being played that day and when. Um, I think, I might be wrong, but I, I think what I calculated was that she was probably listening to Tony Emerson's match when he died. And, there, you know, there were some really, really interesting men's tennis matches that week. There was also the rise of Maria Bueno, this wonderful Brazilian tennis player who would win Wimbledon a few times in the 19th, early 1960s. And um, it was just before Billie Jean King came on the scene. And Billie Jean King is obviously someone who, in many ways, is the logical heir of Lottie Dog, in terms of the fierce independence, in terms of her desire to create women's sports as a separate entity. The women's tennis circuit was created by Billie Jean King. And perhaps most obviously, the battle of the sexes. The fact that, you know, in 1973, Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs. But 85 years earlier, Lottie Dodd had beaten William Renshaw, and I I think that there are these huge similarities. So knowing that Billy Dean King was just about to come on the scene as Lottie Dodd was exiting the scene, to me it was really interesting, really fascinating.
0: How much traveling did you do for your research other than Wimbledon? And it sounds like you went to Switzerland and Norway. Am I right?
1: I went to Switzerland and did quite a lot of archival research there. I went to Norway and tried to replicate some of the routes that Dodd took on her mountaineering expedition. Had a tremendous holiday actually with my kids last summer going into remote parts of central Norway. Didn't know at the time that you know, it might be the last time I get to go with my family abroad for a while, given the pandemic. Yeah, true. Uh, but if if that is the case, it was indeed a good last trip onto the continent for a while. It was a simply remarkable trip. The other place I did quite a lot of archival research was in America, in particular in the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island, which was extremely generous in the way they opened up their archives and opened up their, um, their photo records and their newspaper records and, books and so on. So, I think you know that pretty much sums up all the different places I went to. Of course, a lot of different archives in a lot of different places in England.
0: What was the, um, and, and you did so much research, what was the most surprising thing you discovered? Is there one thing you can, you can pinpoint?
1: That, you know, that's a difficult question. I think maybe one of the most amusing things I discovered, I was in the family archives, in the dog family archives. And one of the things I found was a list of the things that Lottie Dodd had won when she was playing tennis. And she had compiled this list when she was a very old lady. I think it might have been part of the work she was doing as she compiled all the details on her estate. But it listed all the things she'd won. And it turned out that back then, you know, every so often a tournament would give a cash prize and it was always a token cash prize of a few pounds or a few guineas. And sometimes they would actually give trophies. So you'd win a trophy like you would today in an amateur tournament. But the thing I found most amusing was oftentimes they just gave a gift voucher that could be redeemed for silverware at one of London's fancy stores like Liberty's or one of the other fancy stores. And so many of the things she had won were so prosaic. there. She mentioned, for example, that she had a toaster holder that she had bought from her winnings. And she had a purse, an adorned purse with silver ornamentation on it. And we had a few vases and flower holders. And I looked at it and I thought, how marvellous. This, you know, this was nothing to do with the huge cash prize. It was nothing to do with you know, massive newspaper headlines. It was just about winning for the sake of winning. And if you could get a toaster holder at the back end of it, all the better. And it really it amused me and it interested me. So I think maybe that was one of the most unexpected and nice side journeys on my research.
0: Yeah, and and Lottie became, like you said, a, sort of a, you said, madrigal singer and choir singer, and that's another another challenge she took and, and did rather well with as well.
1: She did. She played as a singer for many, many years in the Oriana Madrigal Society, which was one of the top madrigal societies in England. It founded by C.K. Scott, who had basically resurrected the art of the madrigal And she was good. She played in concert halls all around Britain. She was asked with her fellow singers to perform in Buckingham Palace for a private concert for the King and Queen. And she did it for many, many years. She she was a singer for 15 to 20 years at a pretty high level. Looking back
0: now, um, what what should Lottie's legacy be?
1: I, I think the subtitle of my book sums it up. She really was the world's first female sports superstar. There, there was nobody like her, and there wouldn't be anyone like her for several decades later until people like Suzanne Langland and Helen Wills Moody in the tennis world, or Babe Didrikson Zaharias in the golf world, and track and field world. But for many, many, many years, she was just in an absolute league of her own as a, as a female athlete. And I think she should be remembered and honored for that accomplishment, for breaking pretty much every glass ceiling that was put above her head and saying, absolutely not. I will live life on my own terms and I will have nobody tell me that I can't do things just by virtue of my gender.
0: Hmm. Well, this is the part of the interview where I ask you if I've missed anything. And and actually you've covered so many things. I think you've covered everything, but uh, is there something else about the book that you'd like to add?
1: Now, I got to say, you, you just provided me with an opportunity for a wonderfully comprehensive discussion, and I'm really, really happy to have done it. But I think you covered all the major points. Good, good.
0: Now, looking ahead, do you have any new projects in the works as far as books?
1: Not books. I am writing like crazy on politics at the moment. I'm writing two columns a week for The Nation, I'm writing for Truth Out, I'm doing feature articles on the election, I'm writing on immigration but I've deliberately stayed away from another book project because I don't really know what I want to write next. And I think I suspect that any two- or three-year project I embark on now about politics will be hopelessly outdated by the time it comes near to publication. And I think I want to wait to a slightly more stable or at least predictable moment before I dive back into another political book. So, you know, unless anybody comes up with another glorious idea for a sports biography or some other wonderful historical biography barring that I think I may take a breather on books for a few months anyway and focus on my shorter form writing
0: um, definitely some strange times um, we know your time is valuable and gosh, you know we really appreciate you taking the time to chat um, we've been speaking with Sasha Abramsky author of Little Wonder the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd world's first female sports superstar Sasha, thanks again for chatting with us. We really appreciate it.
1: As I said, this was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to New
0: Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.